بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to MISC Women and our podcast series Left or Right? The Straight Path, Please I'm Um Abdullah and I'm very happy to welcome you back to another episode. Let's get started with our dua from Imam Haddad. This is our dua for learning and inshallah it helps us navigate and orientate ourselves towards our goal which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by making sure that our niyyah, our intention for learning is for his sake alone inshallah and it helps us to stay focused and to make sure that the tool of orientation within us which is our hearts is correctly guided inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. اللهم إني نويت تعلم والتعليم والتذكر والتذكير والنفع والانتفاع والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على تمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله والدعاء إلى الهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وكربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى All praise to Allah, Lord of the worlds. I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of His Messenger وسلم, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance of Allah, His divine pleasure, closeness and His reward, the most exalted and high. Amin Ya Rab. In today's episode, we're going to start applying our Surat al-Fatiha and our straight path worldview to a historical context because we can't understand our current contemporary context without having a good understanding of its history and how it developed. So inshallah today we will be looking at European colonialism and for our purposes what we need to really gain from that study and analysis is how this status quo was established. So the status quo is the normal state of affairs or the regular normative state of affairs, whether that be politically, economically, socially, culturally, militarily, etc. on all levels. So we're looking at the history of the establishment of modern nations over the last 500 years. So how is it that the countries that we live in, the cultures that we are a part of, the economic system that we all partake in, how did all those aspects develop historically? And the way that we're going to try and understand that is not just from a straight events point of view, which is often how history is taught, unfortunately, it can be quite dry. So we're not just looking at battles and victors and losers, but what we're going to do, inshallah, is take our Surat al-Fatiha and our straight path framework, paradigm, worldview, and try and understand European history and European colonial history from that point of view, inshallah. So that will be a new perspective. And there are a few things to say about that, first of all. What we need to remember and realize and constantly be trying to cultivate in our understanding and framework of analysis is that 
when we want to critique something from an Islamic scholarly and spiritual point of view, so from the tradition, we need always to bear in mind this concept of ta'sil. And ta'sil means to have something that's grounded and rooted very firmly. Why is that important? Because we can't begin to develop a proper tool of critique and a tool of building our concepts if we don't know where our own ideas come from and how they developed and what they actually do for us in providing an analytical framework. So it's one thing to say, well, I have an idea about something and I'm going to look at history and try and understand history from my particular idea. It's like, okay, fine, you can do that, but where did your idea come from? And that's completely different to saying, I have a solidly grounded, holistic and universal understanding of the world through my Surat al-Fatiha paradigm. I know the elements of it. I know where it came from. I know how it got to me and I know how I can use it. And I'm therefore going to try and understand history from that perspective. So there is one which is grounded and one which is not. And obviously what we want to do is find a way of understanding through our grounded scholarly perspective, inshallah. Mashallah, there is so much in Surat al-Fatiha. It is so rich in meaning and in depth and in breadth that every episode we can always find something new to bring to our discussion that we derive from Surat al-Fatiha. It's like an endless sea, subhanallah. And the perspectives that I want to bring to the discussion today and our analysis, inshallah, of the last 500 years of colonial history is that from Surat al-Fatiha, we get a concept of a vision and a mission and a methodology. And our vision, which is in Surat al-Fatiha, really is the ultimate vision, which is to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his manifested countenance in the akhirah. That's our ultimate vision. And our mission here in the dunya, in order to achieve that vision in the akhirah, our mission here is to learn how to know him and love him whilst we're here. And our methodology for achieving that mission is to be firm on the siratul mustaqim. And the Siratul Mustaqim is the path of guidance and it consists of following and avoiding Itiba and Ijtinab, our two core concepts. And it also involves following those whom Allah has blessed and avoiding those who have gone astray and been the recipients of divine wrath. So when we look at the world from that angle and when we look at human behaviour and when we look at historical events, then we're able to see what's the vision, mission and methodology of other people in the world. How have they set off in doing what they're doing with their particular goals and their means for achieving those goals? I just want to say at this point that what this leads to now is a comparison. Okay, so we can go, oh, look, this is what those people did. This is what Muslims do. And that's useful for us to a certain extent, but only to the point where it enables us to help gauge and formulate and strengthen our worldview 
even more. So when we compare ourselves to others, then it helps us to understand more about ourselves. And that's okay in the short term, but in the long term, that's not the goal here. We're not doing a comparative analysis. However, what we can do is compare for the sake of looking at certain aspects in order to help us strengthen our own understanding. So that's where comparison is useful. But long term, there's no need for a comparison because we already know the superiority and the truthfulness of our tradition and it speaks for itself. So we don't need to go into too much comparison on any level. And just as the Quran mentions, for example, about the polytheists and worshipping false idols, but it doesn't go into a huge discussion and comparison of those things. It, it enables stories to be told about them, which bring to light the meanings. For example, Nabi Ibrahim, when he approached the big idols that his community worshipped, and then when he spoke about those idols to his people and he said, but how can this benefit you when it doesn't speak? And how can this be your God and benefit you when it doesn't hear? So through the use of simple stories like that, which are only simple in the way they're told, they're not simple in their meaning, a person is able to use their intellect and say, well, really, there's no comparison here. So what we're going to do, inshallah, by the end is be able to be in that position where our concept of Surah Al-Fatiha as a paradigm and a worldview is so clear and so ingrained in our way of understanding that we can just look at something and that kicks in and immediately our interpretive tools, our analytical tools and our way of understanding, just that's just how it is. That's how we see the world. And as Muslims, that is how we're meant to see the world. So we instantly have a filter for all that comes into us because our concept is so well grounded and established and fixed within our hearts and in our minds, inshallah. So let's take this concept of a vision, a mission and a methodology and have a look at what we can analyse from that when we apply it to European colonial history. So what we need to do first of all is understand that from 1425 the Portuguese were the first European nation, although they weren't really a nation then, but the first group of people to start colonising other lands which means what? That they set out to dominate another land and another people in order to exploit it for their own use. And they started in the North Atlantic Islands and it was really the, the beginning of the 1500s when their neighbours, the Spanish, uh, wanted to catch up and they set off. And in 1492, actually, Christopher Columbus, who was looking for a western route to India and China, kind of went the wrong way and ended up in the Bahamas, in the Caribbean. And it was there, of course, that the massive colonisation of the South American continent took place and the British had set out to try and interfere with the enormous wealth that Spain had been accumulating for themselves by robbing and pillaging and destroying the indigenous people in South America, all over wherever they found them and stealing their gold and destroying them through disease. There's an interesting book called Guns, Germs and Steel by an American writer called Jared Diamond and he talks about 
how those three elements, how they were the tools of the Europeans in their colonisation and how that destroyed Indigenous people. So there, you can perhaps get some of that on YouTube as well, but that's an interesting book, particularly if you have a scientific interest in uh, particularly in uh, germs and disease and illnesses. The vision basically that these colonial nations had was to benefit themselves and enrich themselves. And the mission that they had or that they believed they had, that there was an inherent religious mission that they had to go on in order to civilise so-called uncivilised people. So it was a Christian civilising mission. So literally a mission in the sense of what they felt that they had to do, but it also was their goal and their means for justifying their vision, which was to enrich themselves at any cost. And the method which they adopted for achieving this was, of course, brutal domination and the mass exploitation and oppression of other people, which, of course, amount to nothing short than the worst crimes against humanity that have probably occurred in human history. So when we look at that as a vision and a mission and a methodology from the Islamic perspective outlined in Surah Al-Fatiha, then we can see that an Islamic vision is one that does what? As we said, our vision is Allah and meeting him and seeing him ultimately in the Akhirah. And our, our mission to achieve that here in the dunya is what? To know him and to love him. And how do we do that? By adhering to the sharia, by adhering to the sacred law, by adhering to the siratul mustaqim. So you can see immediately that there is a huge chasm between the two types of methods and ways of being. And that's really the point that I want to bring out here because we've had a bit of a theoretical look at Surah Al-Fatiha, but now we're actually beginning to apply it. If we consider the ayah which we've taken in previous episodes, uh, there is a hadith where Ibn Masood radiallahu anhu reported that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam drew a line in the sand and said, this is the straight path of Allah, hadha sabilullahi. Then he drew lines to the right of it and lines to the left, like a diagonal lines. And he said, these are other paths which divert from the straight path. Upon each of them is a shaitan calling to it. Then he recited the ayah, وَأَنَّ هَذَا صِرَاتِي مُسْتَقِيمًا فَاتَّبِعُوهُ وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا السُّبُلَ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ this is my path, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking. This is my path that is straight, so follow it. And do not follow the other paths, lest they divert you from his path. So what we're looking at here is the people of وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا السُّبُلَ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ And do not follow the other paths lest they divert you from his path. So when we look at European colonial history, we can see that there has been a massive divergence from what the message of Tawheed came to them originally through Nabi Isa, alayhi salam, Jesus, who is free from the activities of his followers or people who claim to follow him but actually abuse that. 
And it's a path of those who have lost their vision, their ultimate vision of seeing Allah and knowing Allah and loving Allah and walking a straight and pure and clean path in order to achieve that. This is a framework that we need in order to understand these details of history. So as we mentioned, there was the Portuguese and Spanish who were the first people really to set out in this age of discovery. And it wasn't long before the British under Queen Elizabeth I decided they needed to catch up. Although, of course, they had been doing quite a bit of piracy and attacking and stealing the Spanish armadas and stealing the gold from them. Some of their attacks were piracy in an illegal sense and other was state-sanctioned piracy which was actually called privateering where the queen gave her written permission for people to go out and to hijack and steal what the Spanish had already stolen from the people in the South American continent. And along at the same time, we had this European so-called enlightenment developing with a very strong scientific emphasis on empiricism. So people were starting to understand more and more about the scientific method and how science could be used to develop things. And what that meant, of course, when people going into an empirical way of understanding is that they began to reject the religious way of understanding and the fact that things just came from the divine and were accepted as being. So the development of this whole rational mind from the Western perspective set off and really began to influence the society. One of the key aspects of that scientific method and that so-called enlightenment through science and rationale is this concept of reductionism. And reductionism is where something is studied and analysed and understood from the parts that make it up rather than from studying it as a holistic element and breaking it down into its parts. So this is completely in opposition to a theological or a religious view whereby everything, for example, comes from Allah. So we start with the big, we start with the holistic overview, and then we start to look at the details. What reductionism does is it starts at the smallest parts and tries to build up a concept and an idea of what this thing is in order to know it and understand it and use it, but from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And so that as a concept began in a scientific way, but has permeated right through to our time now, where we start to talk about anything coming top down is bad and needs to be fought against. And things that are bottom up, like grassroots, is good. And that's where everything should start in terms of movement, social movement. So we're able to actually track the development of these concepts and how they have evolved and changed over time to take on new meaning through different applications in different fields. So there's a concept which had very much a scientific basis, but which has now become a very prominent feature of social justice movements where the top-down aspect has to be gotten rid of and the bottom-up aspect is the one which is apparently the correct one. Whether it is or whether it isn't, I don't know, okay? I'm not trying to pass too much of my own judgment, although it would be pretty clear as to where I would stand on certain issues. But the point is I'm just trying to present different ways of looking at what we consider to be the values of our time. 
Uh, Britain very quickly became a real powerhouse and they set off colonising all over the place, in the Caribbean, in Africa. Well, first of all, they had their roots in, in America because it was uh, the British-English uh, pilgrims that went and settled in America. But when it came to the American War of Independence in the 1760s, 1770, around that time, then they lost a lot of land and power there and they had to begin searching in other areas. And it's at the same time that they discovered Australia and the Pacific and they set off in all directions. And so by the end of the 19th century, then a quarter of the world's land and a quarter of the world's population was under British rule. And the other European nations, France was probably the biggest one after Britain. They had a strong influence in North Africa and eventually in Vietnam, that area known as Indochina, and uh, also in the Caribbean and Portugal, as we said, expanded. Italy had Somalia and some areas there, Libya, and Germany as well had some horrific colonial experiences in southwest Africa, particularly in Namibia, and Belgium as well. They had a presence in Central Africa. So we can see that the European nations spread all over the world with their colonising and genocidal policies where they set about destroying people and their societies and cultures and bringing in their crops and using the land, the minerals and the natural resources for themselves and to enrich themselves. And it was through this, of course, that global trade began to expand rapidly. So this whole process really evolved over a few centuries. So from around the early 1500s to around the middle of the 19th century in the 1850s. And then concurrently from about the 1700s or 1700 or just before until the 1900s, of course, that was marked by slavery and the Industrial Revolution. And so when we think of slavery, we usually think of transatlantic slavery, where the British particularly would take people from the coasts of Africa and take them across the sea to the Caribbean and also to uh, North America and also to Brazil. So it wasn't just the British, it was also the Spanish and Portuguese. And we tend to forget sometimes that that wasn't the only area of enforced slavery. There was also the trans-Indian Ocean slave trade, which the Dutch ran through the VOC, the, the, the Dutch East India Company. And their purpose was to bring people to work in South Africa because it was then called the Cape of, it was the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Colony, and it was a major port of call for ships coming from Europe and heading out to Southeast Asia. So the Dutch had a vested interest there and having been the colonising force in Indonesia, they ended up being there for 300 years, colonising Indonesia. SubhanAllah, it's Amazing how Indonesian people have held on to their culture, their religious culture, despite having been colonised so brutally for 300 years. And the Dutch and the British uh, both had a very, very big hand in bringing people from the Indonesian Malaysian area across through to the island of Madagascar, where they would pick up more slaves and then take them to the south of Africa.
At the same time, there was the steam engine being developed. There's a lot of scientific and technological developments happening. And of course, with the development of, uh, of machinery and industrialization, then human labor started to be redundant to some extent. And then, of course, we have the anti-slavery movement in North America. And then we have mass poverty occurring in England and in industrial areas in England because people were now no longer needed in traditional working roles. And so people flocked to the cities trying to find work in factories. And of course, we have this terrible and shocking poverty and a mass illness and disease and absolutely horrible conditions that people were living in around sort of the 1830s to 1860s, which is when Karl Marx and his good friend Frederick Engels took their ideas about class and exploitation and the ruling class and the working class and began to develop that into the Communist Manifesto after what they witnessed in Britain um, at the time, at the peak of the Industrial Revolution, when it brought so much misery to the local population. So it was at that time that rapid industrial, scientific and technological development in all areas, such as transport, military, manufacturing, medical, everything was completely changed. And traditional roles of farming and handmade goods and production became what we would call cottage industries. They became small scale and were soon replaced by this mass production of consumable goods. Now, that didn't really take off until later in the 20th century, but that's where it began in the 19th century. And then, of course, we move into the 20th century where we have now the great display and the peak of Western and European civilization and all the amazing technological developments through World War I, where the mass destruction that occurred showed people how dangerous technology can actually be if it's used for the wrong purposes. And it was at the same time with the mass destruction and the mass killing in World War I that the application of Marxism as an economic and political system began to really take off. That was through the Russian Revolution in 1918. And then we had World War II and the Cold War, which is where America and Russia had this massive standoff. And as they amassed atomic weapons and, and weapons of what we would call mass destruction now, nuclear weapons, um, they they didn't engage in active warfare, but they had what was called the Cold War, where there was tremendous amount of hostility and there was the accumulation of weaponry, should it turn into a actual war. And then in the 1960s, we had a most interesting event take place. And that was the development of a Marxist counterculture which emerged in Western nations despite the Cold War. So despite the political, military and economic and also the competition for what they called the space race. So who would get to the moon first? Who would be the one to launch rockets and satellites and really develop space technology? So this was something which America and Russia were very much in competition about. And the really interesting thing is that in American society, 
there was an emergence of this Marxist counterculture despite what was going on with their governments. And that's a major point for us because it's at that point that socially and culturally people were beginning to challenge the status quo. They were beginning to challenge the economic, military, social, cultural and political norms which had been established since the 1500s through European dominance and colonisation and come up with an alternative and a revolutionary alternative based on the ideas of Karl Marx. So we will come back to that many, many times, inshallah, but it's just to point out that this is when that started to really take off in Western countries in a big way, not just in a in a way, say, for example, in Russia, where there was a mass movement that quickly got overtaken by Stalin and turned into something else. This is where you have so-called free-thinking, free people who are now taking on these socialist ideas and trying to apply that to their own societies and bring about change or what they would call positive change in their society by challenging the norms and standards that had been there and that they had known over this 500-year period. Then in about the year 2000, so going into the 21st century, there is a huge technological change in communication through the internet, through the mobile phone industry, and that brings us out now to the social media world. So we can see from 500 years ago when the Spanish and the Portuguese set off looking for new land to dominate and to exploit and to use for their own benefit. And what that led to now is this social media culture that we are all inextricably involved in. So what are the main values and concepts and ideas which informed the historical events over the last 500 years? Well, we've touched on it a little bit by talking about some of the the scientific challenges to the traditional religious authority which existed at the time and we've we can see that there was an incredible need to oppress other people and dominate other people and steal from them for other people's purposes of personal enrichment and it wasn't just personal enrichment it was actually the enrichment of companies although the rulers like the royals and the people the crown of each country because each european country at the time from the netherlands to Um, Britain and the others, they had rulers and some form of government and government was changing to involve more of the citizenry, which is another idea about starting to dismantle power from the top and have a shared system of checks and balances, which is what the founding fathers of America took up, where they have a division between, for example, where the rules are made in the government and the judiciary So there is a checks and balances. So as we get this real monopoly of power start to be undermined in European countries, we also have the development of great companies that went out and actually did these acts of colonisation and uh, and destruction of other people. And so they enriched themselves as individuals and companies and also they enriched the governments or parliaments or rulers of the countries that they were from. And what really underpinned all that in terms of personal value was, of course, individualism and these concepts that the individual has the right to self-fulfilment and to 
expand for themselves, develop for themselves. And whilst there are rights that must adhere to in the society, it's the individual's pursuit of liberty and freedom and personal wealth that really drives this whole movement towards going out and seeing what you can get out of life and out of the world. And if that means the wholesale destruction, theft, and uh, genocide of other people, then so be it, because the strongest survives. We're talking about the survival of the fittest here, and that's just the way it is. And if that just happens to be the white man, then so be it, and it might show something about the white man. And they could go off on a whole variety of ideas about that, about white superiority, which, of course, they have done. That's always been the dominant narrative. Um, And also coming down to military strength and religious strength and cultural strength. So all these self-proposed justifications for European countries to go and do what they have done to bring about their vision and their mission of civilizing people at any cost. They are the main values that are behind all of that. So that really sums up for us what the status quo is. So the status quo is now generally considered to be the right and conflict theories, which are our Marxist-based theories, which oppose that, are considered to be the left. And these are the two dominant ways of understanding the world today in the Western intellectual tradition. So the status quo is actually called conservative because it's about literally about conserving the traditional structures and values that have established Western societies over the last 500 years. And it's through those events that we've outlined that this state of affairs has existed and it's based on that that the structures that we have in our societies continue to exist. And the conflict theories, which are the leftist ones, are about challenging, opposing and bringing down the status quo. So this is really, when we talk about polarisation, then this is the two poles. We have this right-wing one about conserving what we've got, even if it means that it has a horrible history, but there must be something good in it somewhere, the argument goes. And as you can see, it's produced stable societies, it's produced incredible bureaucracies that work, and everybody has their rights, and people have a right to the law, and then they can pursue freedom of choice, and they can seek their own wealth, and if they succeed, they succeed, and if they don't, that's their own fault. And nobody needs to really have too much responsibility for anybody else. There's a strong military aspect. There's a strong justice aspect, punishment and justice there. So the uh, prison system and the correctional system is very strong, needs a strong police force, needs a strong army. So a very authoritarian type of way of dealing with society and and societal and uh, personal transgressions. Um, And then we have the conflict theories which are in opposition to that. So I just wanted to set up in this episode what we have in our cultures and societies and how it got there and then what are the forces that are opposing that. In our next episode, inshallah, we're going to have a look at the knowledge that these two poles are based on and we're going to look at how these ideas and theories of the world, so a conservative theory or a conservative ideology which supports the status quo. So how did that develop? What's this genealogy in terms of thought? 
So we've had a look at genealogy in terms of events, but what is the thought, what, are, what is the knowledge that's gone into all of that? And inshallah, we will also have a look at the conflict theories and the genealogy and the origin of those theories and how they came about, primarily through Marx and Engels, as we mentioned, and then we will start to look more at how that has manifested, inshallah. And then whilst we do that, we always need to keep our Surah Al-Fatiha lens on. So how are we understanding all this through our straight path metaphor? How are we understanding all of this from the fact that we know from Surah Al-Fatiha that we have Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. We have Allah and the Alameen, everything else. Allah tells us about himself. He's Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawm din That's where we're going. It's him that we worship and it's him that we seek help from because we're weak and can't do anything ourselves. Guide us on the straight path, the path of those you've blessed, not the path of those who have gone astray or earned your wrath. This is how we look at the world and it's very, very clear cut. And when we see these massive transgressions that have gone on and developed our societies based on these massive transgressions, then we need to know what has served that in terms of knowledge, what has informed that and how do we begin to sift through and work out what of that is correct and actually fits our way of understanding the world and what doesn't and that's what will enable us inshallah once we manage to filter through all the things which don't fit then inshallah we'll be able to see more clearly about what does fit because there are some things which are okay but we have to get to that and then that will enable us inshallah to be more clear about what are these poles, these, this uh, polarization in our society between the left and the right and where do we fit in in that whole picture and do we even fit in and do we have to fit in? Is that an imperative? Is that something we need to do? Do we need to be out there jumping up and down for democracy and, and uh, social justice? I mean, is that what we're here for? And should we be uh, supporting conservative views in the society? Is that what we're here for? So we need to understand really how the right has developed and how the left has developed. And inshallah, we're able to see ourselves in all of that. And then we can start to navigate and move forward, inshallah, in the best way and on the Siratul Mustaqim, inshallah. So I hope to join you again for the next episode where we will go into those things in more detail, inshallah. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.